Man, really excited about this, uh, this passage in particular um, because the story has finally made it. Um, if you have been with us, you know that the story of Jonah has kind of been leading to this point where God is leading Jonah to um, the people of Nineveh to deliver a ministry, a message there. Um, and I'm going to tell you the title of the message tonight to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be examining. Uh, the title of the message is Revival in Nineveh. Revival in Nineveh. So the idea of that title should excite you, um, especially if you've been with us the entire series of Jonah so far. Uh, this is a spoiler alert if you're just, you know, you haven't read all the way through Jonah, you haven't um, been with us. The message that God told Jonah to get to Nineveh finally does get to Nineveh. Remember the evil people, they were known for just their their horrible, evil, wickedness, blasphemy against God, and the message finally gets there. And guess what? They respond in faith and repentance. If you remember when um, Jonah is on the ship and the wrath storm is all around them and Jonah lets them know who his God is, we remember that the people on the ship actually end up believing in God and repenting, and the same thing happens in the evil place of Nineveh. Faith, repentance, revival. But i got to slow down and just ask you this. Does, does the idea of revival excite you at all? Um, when you hear that word, does it get your juices flowing? Or you want to be a part of something big and massive like revival? Uh, if you grew up in church, maybe in Appalachia, there's a chance that the word revival reminds you of a week-long church service marathon where a guest speaker comes in and does a series of evangelistic sermons. Anybody there? When you hear revival, okay. All right, so you guys grew up in Appalachia. You know, it's like we have revival coming, speaker, you go to church every night leading up into the next Sunday morning service. Um, and listen, those things aren't necessarily bad, but that wasn't technically revival. Wasn't technically revival. We can call it revival, and it, it wasn't technically revival. Unless it was. <laughs> the reason I say unless it was is because revival is ultimately up to God. Um, I want to define revival for you before we even go further into this. I think it's an important concept for us as a ministry to know. Um, and a simple way of looking at it is that revival is just God doing what he does when he saves a person. But in an intense way um, to many people. So when someone follows Jesus, surrenders their life to Jesus, it's just when God does that on a massive scale. Uh, theologian J.I. Packer describes it this way. He says, Revival is God touching minds and hearts in an arresting, devastating, exalting way. To draw them to himself through working from the inside out rather than the outside in. It is God accelerating, intensifying, and extending the work of grace that goes on in every Christian's life, but is sometimes overshadowed and somewhat smothered by the impact of other forces. It is the near presence of God giving new power to the gospel of sin and grace. It is the Holy Spirit sensitizing souls to divine realities so that it generates deep level responses to God in the form of faith, Repentance, praise, prayer, love, joy, works of benevolence and service and initiatives of outreach and sharing. So in other words, revival 
is something we should all long for, want, desire. Like, does that excite you? Do, you? do you think of hundreds and thousands of people getting saved in the ministries that we are doing, in the personal ministries, and Tuesday nights, Sunday mornings? Does that excite you? Because I want you to know something. At this church, we are all in for seeing revival in our city and on our campus. So I do want to plug, um, I think Jana, I'm usually, I'm not in here for the first couple songs, I'm usually nervous pacing around, if you've ever been late, you know that's true. Um, So I didn't hear if Jana gave all of the info on this, but part of joining our church, joining the student serve team, is we are going to equip you, do everything we can in our power to get you ready to be the tip of the gospel spear in revival at our campus. Because here's the fact of the matter. I have no idea what kind of ministry dreams and work that the Lord may have for the people in this room. But I know that if we continue to do things biblically, love Jesus, give him our lives, that this ministry can be a place where you are equipped and unleashed in those ministry dreams. Like, slow down for a second. Like, can you imagine revival at Marshall University? Can you even imagine it? Have you thought about what might happen if the gospel comes in full, big-scale power in Huntington? Hundreds and hundreds of the people that you are in class with getting saved. You ever thought about it? Have you ever dreamed that big as a ministry? Like legitimate change happening? Like I'm talking masses of former drug addicts flooding in churches on Sunday, poverty alleviated by the people of God loving their neighbors, sending churches to plant more churches to plant more churches in the rest of our state, hundreds of prayer meetings happening on Marshall's campus, more campus ministries happening on every day of the week because we can't contain the people that God is saving, baptisms happening every single Sunday. Can you see it? Man, and there's like, I just want, I think out of all of this, when we consider revival in Nineveh, I think the main point we need to realize is that it is possible. It's nothing that we're going to manufacture here, something that we're going to put together a string of incredible worship services, destroy and kill. I mean, these are bad words, but I mean like in a good way. Open mics on Friday. That might not bring revival. But you have to know that our God is capable of that kind of thing. And if you look through history, especially in North America, it started with this age group. It did. Do you want it? If you want that, you've got to know this. That God uses broken individuals to accomplish his perfect purposes. And listen, as a ministry, this is terrifying as a leader just because of my own flesh, my own sinful desires, but his purpose for us may be to faithfully shrink. Maybe to faithfully shrink until he returns. But I'm saying, let's beg him for more. Let's imagine what might happen. We pray to a God, obey a God that can do more than we can ask or imagine. Let's live our lives, share the gospel like we know that our God is capable of anything. Here's some practical steps for us. These are steps for revival, okay? I believe these are, in, these are biblical ideas. The first step of revival is to pray. The second step is to go and share the gospel. The third step is to pray. 
The fourth step is to actually speak of the love of Christ to your neighbors. The fifth step is to pray. The sixth step is to confess your sin. The seventh step is to pray. The eighth step is to serve and love our neighbors. The ninth step is to pray. Tenth step, reconcile sinful relationships. Make sure we're in unity. The eleventh step, pray. Twelfth step, it's a little bit different. It's, did I mention pray? Why do I make that point? Because no move of God, bigger than what we can ask or imagine, happens on our own power. You have to own that. So many times, man, we get like, oh, ministry, if we can just get our act together and put on the best polished performances of whatever, and we think that somehow that means revival is happening. I don't want to be marked as that. I want to be marked as people who are begging for seven of the 12 steps of what we're going to do for ministry that we pray. I'm hoping that as we see that revival is God's work alone, we will join him in obedience to see what might happen if a group of followers of Jesus this big decide to take this seriously. So we're going to look at the story of Jonah again and see what happens in this particular story of revival. But since there are some new people for us this semester, I'm going to catch you up on the story of Jonah so far and then kind of break in between and give you some things that we should be learning along the way. The Lord calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. What should we be learning? That we are called to go into the world with the gospel. Jonah's heart was revealed by the command of God to go to hard people with this message. What we learned is that Jonah's life agenda was more important than God's agenda. And what we can learn is that our response to God's call on our life shows our heart toward him. Jonah doesn't want to preach to Nineveh because they were horrible, evil people. And they were. But what this shows us is that our actions of love towards our enemies reveals our hearts toward God. God's purposes for Jonah's life and the fate of the people of Nineveh would not be stopped by the evil of Nineveh or by the evil of Jonah. I want you to understand this, that God is doing a work and he does not need us. But if we will by faith obey what he is doing, he just might use us. And the evil out there in your classrooms cannot stop his plan. The evil in this room, the evil in me, cannot stop what God is doing. Jonah decides to take a ship the opposite way of Nineveh. The Lord disciplines Jonah through a huge storm, and Jonah is asleep. And we learn that sometimes we are too numb to even notice what God is doing. The other passengers are terrified and realize that something divine is happening. They wake Jonah up. To get him to call on his God, Jonah says, you can throw me in the water so the storm will stop. They throw him in the water, and the storm stops. Jonah sinks deeper and deeper into the water. While in the water, Jonah gets some perspective. And sometimes, listen, God needs to flatten us so we can learn how to worship him through our brokenness. Um, you ever remember the, uh, it was like a, I think it might have been on the internet some, but definitely in my group of friends, like a trust fall. You ever heard of those? Like where you just kind of like, I'm not going to do it here, but, you know, you, you fall and you say trust fall, and then the idea is that that person that you're falling in front of, you trust, and they will catch you, right? You guys get the idea. Um, I think sometimes we can look at our, our, our faith in God and think that it's kind of like a giant divine cosmic trust fall. 
But in reality, sometimes stepping out in faith and doing a trust fall to God might look like him moving back and letting you hit the ground because you need to see what it's like from down there. Doesn't mean every risk we take is going to be blessed to the point of unbelievable fruit. But it does mean we might just see what it looks like to be humble before God. We need God's severe mercy in our lives. After he's in the, it's in the fish, Jonah is vomited out on dry land. God's mercy did a work on Jonah. We've got to remember we are saved to be sent. It's not just swallow Jonah up in that fish and keep him there. An incredible story. Sent to Nineveh. And then the story continues on into the actual Jonah-led ministry into Nineveh. So let's look at Jonah 3. I know, that's a 12-minute introduction. Sorry about that. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. We're going to see the first movement of this story of what happens. I love this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out. Here's the moment. Big sermon coming. Ready? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Altar call, right? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, to the least of them. So a few points where we break this down slowly. This is ridiculous. Like, you think, there's about 120,000-ish people in Nineveh. And we see this evil, mean prophet, doesn't even learn his lesson, finally gets to these people, preaches an eight-word sermon on the wrath of God only, and 120,000 people. Like, imagine this number. It's like ten times more than what's at Marshall. Believe God, repent, revival in Nineveh. Using a rebellious prophet that didn't even like the people he was ministering to. What is the point, though? I think the major point here is to show that God can bring about revival whenever and however he wants. And that also revival can affect the lowest parts of a society. And also God can move in power, in the places of power in our society. But I want to turn our, our focus to the very first phrase in, in chapter 3. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And I love this. In my study, there were some people who were saying that that phrase right there is the entire Bible in one verse. The whole Bible in one verse. I think it's easy to skip over this. It's like the transition point between pre-fish Jonah and post-fish Jonah. But this verse is full of the mercy of God. And this little verse shows us the entire story of God and how he continues to show mercy to people who rebel against him. Let me show you this. Here's Jonah's story. The word of the Lord came to him to go. He was supposed to expand the reign of God through preaching of his word. He was supposed to take what God had created in Israel and the promised land and then see all the nations worship him. Jonah rebelled and experienced death by way of ocean, for that rebellion. Then the word of the Lord came a second time. Think about the mercy on display here. Jonah was a mess. Jonah screwed up. But the word still came a second time. Story of the Bible. The word of the Lord created and commanded Adam and Eve. 
They were to expand God's rule and reign into all of creation. They were called to take what God created in the garden and expand it into the chaos of the world outside of the garden. Adam and Eve rebelled and experienced spiritual death. They were banished from God's presence. God could have ended the story there, but instead he continued his perfect plan to see a new creation happen where all things would glorify him forever. And God's word came a second time. Except it wasn't really a new word, except the creating force and power of the word came in flesh and blood in Jesus Christ to start the new creation. Jesus would expand God's reign over the face of the earth through the hearts of people who would put their faith in him. This is an incredible story that has eternal significance for your story. We were all created to glorify God and radiate that glory where we work, live, and play and expand His reign into all aspects of our lives. We all rebelliously turn away in pursuit of our own glory, and God did not leave us there. God sends His word a second time. Jesus, not to just die for us, but die instead of us. And that word, made flesh, rises again to show that His word is true. So, for people in Christ, this should never get boring. Because people who belong to him have come to Jesus by faith and repentance. The word coming for you in redemption has already saved you. The word that came to you and saved you has sent you to tell more people about this word. And even now, in your rebellion, in your brokenness, because of the word, listen, you have unlimited second chances. Like, then the word of the Lord came a second time, should explode off the page for you, especially those of you that have continued your whole life following Jesus with no zeal for the loss, no love for Jesus, continuing in that same sin that you want to just get out of, but you can't. Listen, the word of the Lord came a second time, which means when that word of the Lord came a second time and died for you and rose again, you get unlimited second time chances. This is mind-blowing mercy. And for people that have yet to bow down to King Jesus, the fact that you are breathing right now shows the mercy of God. He could leave you dead right now. But even as we sit here, the word made flesh is alive and reigning and the word in text is being preached. It's coming to you another time. Won't you Repent and believe, because I want you to know something. The people in this room are not interested in setting up a Christian club or putting on a Christian show every week. It's not our goal. Our goal is to celebrate a God that never stops pursuing us in mercy, even after we have made a mess of this thing. Back to the story. So, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. And then that big sermon, there's eight points, just happens to be eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So look at this. Jonah preaches a message of coming wrath for sinful people. And there is an important lesson for us to learn here. If we do not preach about the wrath of God, the love of God will not make sense. If we don't live out our ministry under the reality of the wrath of God then there is no point in doing ministry. Man, that's not fun to speak about. Like, that's not how you get a crowd. 
But we have to understand, there is no point in doing ministry if there is not wrath for people who do not follow Jesus. His love makes no sense without his wrath. I'm going to give you six quick points on the wrath of God. These are borrowed from a sermon that changed my life, but I want you to have these as you meditate through this. The first one is this, that the wrath of God is terrible and it's eternal. Romans 2, 7 through 8. There are only two choices at the end of all of history. Eternal life with Jesus, eternal wrath and fury. This is a real thing that will really happen to real people that we really love. This is the worst thing that can ever happen to someone. This heaviness should consume us, not in a fatalistic despair of doom and gloom, but in a zealous mission toward those who haven't heard. Think about your life. If the wrath of God is real and terrible and eternal, the way we interact with friends and lost neighbors should be different. Point number two. The wrath of God is present and it has begun. That's Romans 1.18. The sin and destruction that is happening in our culture is not only storing up wrath, it is wrath. The Lord, God that we serve and sing about, is furious with the cultural decay and people getting exploited in our world. That means legislation that has been passed that won't protect the most vulnerable among us. It's wrath. The Lord is angry at that. It's not easy to talk about, but it is a reality that must be discussed. It's not happy. He is angry at powerful people who would take advantage of the weak among us. Next point. The wrath of God is coming at the final judgment. There really will be a day when all of history is over. The people who have used their lives to reject Jesus will get the righteous wrath of God unloaded on them forever. This makes God just. Every evil will be paid for. Like, none of us should hear that and think, yeah, get, get what they deserve. This should break you. This is terrifying, and it's actually happening. Next point, the wrath of God is owing to our sin. And we can't miss this point. We aren't just kind of bad people. We aren't just good people who make mistakes. We aren't morally neutral people who have slid the wrong way. We are sinful people and apart from Christ, we deserve the wrath of God. Listen, if I hated you, I would tell you something different. It's not easy, but when you preach through books of the Bible and you get to these realities, we have to deal with them as a ministry. Next point, the wrath of God is righteous. And I want to read the text here. Romans 3, 5 through 6 says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? We can't fall into the trap that God's wrath makes him a bad God. The world will reject the doctrine of wrath and hell the most. Listen, you want to get socially ostracized in your class. Let people know you believe in a God that is full of wrath for wickedness. And listen, there's a difference in the way we talk about this and the way crazy preacher guy talks about it on campus. 
You can't connect wrath of God with guy holding repent or burn signs. But if we slide too hard the other way, we are literally not preaching the gospel. The world's going to reject this, but we must let it be our guide and moral compass. God is good, He is loving, and He is wrath. Last, or second to last point here. God's wrath is His decision, not ours. This is truly something that we must let guide the way we think about everything. We can get angry at injustice, but our job is not to inflict the wrath of God. His decision, not ours. And our last point that you cannot miss, God's wrath has been absorbed by Jesus. This is where we must land for people to know the full gospel. God's wrath is still coming, but for those who have faith, it has been absorbed in full by Jesus for all who believe. You may, isn't that amazing? Like You think about the worst possible thing ever that is going on your lost neighbor if they do not bend their knee to Jesus, and we know a truth about the Son of God. The primary sermon coming from Jesus was not the wrath of God is coming for you wicked sinners. The primary sermon of Jesus was the wrath of God is going to land on me. So you wicked sinners can go free. And when God moves in holy rage over people who will surrender their lives to him, we could see the start of revival coming. Jonah preaches the wrath of God on Nineveh. Could have been a summary of what he said, or it could have been an actual eight-word sermon. I'm not going to, you know, you can debate whatever you think it was. But we see what happened. When the reality of who God is is preached in full, the people of Nineveh believed God. They fast in desperation for God. They repent. This is what we should lead people toward in our ministry interactions. We want them to believe God. We want them to long for God. We want them to be broken over their sin. No matter how powerful or popular, the wrath of God levels the playing field. Do you see that? Like The fact that Jesus has absorbed all the wrath of God for you should give you a boldness like the world has never seen. That the worst possible thing ever has been done to someone who took your place. And now you have the message that can set people free from the worst thing ever. Ever. Wrath of God is what makes the love of God overwhelming because in his love he sends Jesus to take the wrath of God. Look at the rest of the story. The word, I love this, reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, so the revival went to the animals apparently, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Look at this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We see even the king of Nineveh getting off his throne. Some scholars said that's symbolic, that Jesus was on the throne now in Nineveh. 
So the king got off of his throne, took off his royal robes, and put on sackcloth. He, he even, you show how wide-reaching this can be. He literally calls for repentance among the beasts of the field. And we're going to see in chapter 4 next week how even God's considering the cattle of Nineveh. His love is beyond my comprehension. God relents from his disaster in response to their repentance. And I think that's incredible news for us, that God is sovereign, God is just, God is wrath, God is love, God is good, but he responds to people. Like, I think it's easy sometimes to let the heavy doctrine of the sovereignty of God keep us from thinking that humans are responsible for responding to him, or that somehow God's sovereignty is not big enough to encompass our decisions and our choices and our responses. But God is sovereign, and if people will repent, he will not bring disaster. So our charge isn't to go, all right, Marshall, in 40 days, Marshall's overthrown, and then see what happens. Our message is, there's coming a day when Jesus will return in wrath to judge all people who reject him. But before he did that, he came in love and in sacrifice the first time. And all the wrath that you deserve was taken on him. So i got one question to deal with at the end of this. We're going to go in verse 1 of chapter 4. Look at this. <laughs> like, all these people, I can't even, I don't want to judge. I might have been here too. But like, you've gone through the fish, you've seen God, you, you preach a horrible sermon. No offense, Jonah. <laughs> And all of these people get saved. And then look at verse 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Just got to ask ourselves. Are we even ready for revival? Because if you'll notice, Jonah's heart was exposed once again. He was actually angry that these people repented. So we must ask ourselves if we are even ready for revival. Are there people that you don't actually want to find the mercy of God? Are there ministries or churches that you don't want to see bring in revival by the power of God? Would it upset you exceedingly if our calling was maybe to not see all the fruit, but all the other campus ministries and all the other churches in Huntington saw this incredible revival? Do we want revival or do we want the credit? Or are we just like Jonah, you don't even want to see it? We've got to ask ourselves these questions because if God really does bring revival, we got a lot of work to do. Can you imagine? Imagine if just 50 people got saved this year. How much discipleship? How much ministry? What would your life have to be? Um, what in your life would have to be changed? Our hearts as Christians should be to want people to see the mercy of God, not the wrath of God. So. I hope that we're found faithful in this. Like when you talk about realities this big, I mean, maybe we sow seeds for the next 10 years, but maybe we see an incredible harvest. But don't you just want to pray that way? Like, do you believe in a God that can save 120,000 people and like the evil capital of the world? Let's, let's revisit the steps of revival in case we didn't quite get them. Number one is pray. Number two is Go. So in light of a God that has sent us, remember to go. Number three is pray. Number four, speak the gospel. Number five, pray. Number six, confess sin. You see, revival in history, it's always accompanied with people saying, I'm a sinner, 
I'm unholy before a holy God. They're repenting. Number seven, pray. Number eight, serve your neighbors. Number nine, pray. Number ten, unity among Christians. Reconcile relationships. Number eleven, pray. To be the person who will be the kind of Christian that will let these things be the all-consuming reality of your life, we must come to terms with the wrath of God. And we must repent of our lack of zeal for lost people. Like, can we just commit that? Can, can this not be a routine Tuesday? Like, a few minutes, we're going to end this sermon, and we're going to sing some songs, and we're going to go eat snacks. And the danger is, is that we can go through these deep gospel truths, and somehow it's just we leave here thinking, wow, that was a good service. I don't ever want to hear that. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in if this God is true and what he says is real, then it should have drastic implications for the rest of your life. Starting tonight. Some of you got to repent. Maybe you don't even know Jesus. You have nothing to do with him. Maybe some of you have rebelled so far away that this seems weird. Maybe there's Christians in here that are personally holy, but there's no missional aspect to your life at all. You've got to let this wake us up. So how will we respond? Let's look at Matthew 12. This is a New Testament reference to the story of Jonah as we consider our response tonight. Then uh, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But this is Jesus talking. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Look at 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, band, as you come back up to lead us, I just want to remind you that just like in Nineveh thousands of years ago, these people repented at the preaching of Jonah. We have Jesus who is the greater Jonah. And his word has come to us once again. Like, you ever realize that? Like, any of you just like... You can put your cards on the table and say, man, like I've been really excited, talked a great game about living my life on mission this whole semester, and I haven't done jack, but just go fill a seat at a campus ministry. I feel that way. I'm like, man, like all I've done is just kind of fulfill a ministry role rather than letting these realities break me to the point where my life is going to be different. Yet his word has come to us again. There's another chance to repent. There's another chance to live out the mercy of God. So it is time in song right now, maybe in confession afterwards. I don't know what you need to do. But if you're a follower of Jesus in here, let's do whatever it takes right now as we get ready to worship to not let this be a routine night. You know, man, the moment that we start, the moment we start letting this just become a thing we do is the moment that I want to quit. I'll be honest. I want to see what might happen if this amount of people in here say, you know what, Jesus is actually worth surrendering our lives to. Break us, Lord, so we can be used. And will you bring revival? So uh, before they sing, I'm going to just pray for revival. Um, and, and I don't want you to listen to me pray. Sermon's over. I want you to pray. And, and man, I know the temptation. Somebody up front says to pray, and then you just kind of bow your head and close your eyes and don't pray. I'm asking you right now to pray. 
beg the Lord to do whatever it takes to break our lives for something bigger than we can ever ask or imagine. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you as sinful, weak, um, helpless people. Lord, if it was not for your mercy, we would not be here. We would not be um, alive. We would not have these good gifts that you've surrounded us with. And Lord, it's in that same mercy that you sent Jesus to die for us, die instead of us. And when he rose to new life, he made it possible for us to have a relationship with you. Lord, kill the sin of Jonah in us. So many of us, including me, are just saved to sit. Lord, we're just so focused on making sure we feel right about Jesus rather than our hearts being bent towards people who don't know him. So God, all across this room, I pray by your spirit, you would convict us. That we would not leave tonight without repenting of sin, reconciling relationships, and with a newfound zeal that our lives will be different. Lord, I believe you've given us, uh, given this ministry as a gift to our city and our campus. I believe you're working and doing things beyond what we can ask or imagine. And Lord, we are begging you for thousands of salvations. Lord, that seems impossible, and I have to admit, even now, I'm doubting. But Lord, I pray you would help us in our unbelief, that we would get to the point that we live like we serve a God who can save anyone who will come to him. So Father, as we turn to sing now, um, I pray we would sing this song in confession. We would sing this song as free people. And that ultimately the weight of your glory in this room by your preached words and by the songs of your people would crush those of us in here who are unrepentant. I pray that by your mercy you'd rescue them tonight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.